Hello. Welcome to the myths and history of ancient Greece. Chapter 37. The small things that change history. History is a funny thing. People think they are in control of events and that all of the most important things happened because people made them happen. Sometimes, probably quite often, this is not the case. Sometimes little bits of good luck or bad luck make all the difference. Sometimes small things have unexpected consequences. In this chapter, we will see how a horse's bridle and a drunken dinner party eventually led to the downfall of Sparta. By 400 BC, Sparta had taken control in Greece. The winners of the Peloponnesian War slowly began to realise that they had won and it all went to their heads a bit. Lysander, the heroic victorious general, was suddenly the most powerful man, even though he wasn't a king. Sparta had kings, but the great leader was more powerful than both of them. He marched around Greece, arriving in city after city. Each time he installed a new government, usually containing ten of his friends. Eventually the Spartan leaders got embarrassed by these goings-on and recalled him to Sparta. In Sparta, though, Lysander got bored. It wouldn't be long before he was at it again. The Spartans, who had used Persia in their bid to win the war, decided to get involved with a bit of rebellion in Persia. They'd promised they'd hand over the Greek cities of Asia Minor to Persian control, but they were having second thoughts. If they could help Cyrus, the younger brother of the king of Persia, to throw out the current king, thought the Spartans, then maybe they wouldn't have to go through with their part into the bargain. It seemed like a tremendously good idea, so they sent a force over to help with the rebellion. Meanwhile, in Athens, there was a different problem. The poor Athenians had been forced into destroying their great city walls. It is said that the gloating Spartans watched and played flutes as the walls came down. The fighting men of Athens were at a bit of a loose end and not being paid. The Spartan trip to Persia seemed like an ideal opportunity to do a bit of fighting and get paid for it. In 403 BC, about 10,000 Greek mercenaries, many of them from Athens, sailed off to Asia Minor in good heart. One of their leaders was a man called Xenophon. Sadly for the Greeks, it all went horribly wrong. Cyrus was killed early in the fighting, and all Persian support melted away. 10,000 Greek soldiers were left stranded in enemy territory. The local Persian leader said they could all go home in peace. The Greeks started to march home. They were attacked and hassled at every opportunity by the Persians, and it looked as if they might not make it. Xenophon took charge. He brought the soldiers together and told them they were Greeks and they must be proud of being Greeks. There were 10,000 of them, he said, and they were the best soldiers in the world. However they did it, they were going to get home. Xenophon led the Greeks through enemy terrain towards the Black Sea and safety. They were attacked at every turn. They struggled through terrifying mountains and unknown country. They had to scrabble around for food. Xenophon never lost heart. He urged his men on. Eventually the Greeks staggered out of the mountains and gazed out over the waters of the Black Sea. Exhausted and ecstatic, the soldiers cheered and hugged each other. They were so exhausted, all they could shout was, Thalata, Thalata, which means the sea, the sea. The Greeks made it home and Xenophon was a hero. The great man was around for most of the events of the coming years. He was a historian and philosopher as well as a soldier and it is from his historical records that we get a lot of our information about this period. Back in Sparta, the Spartans were still being too big for their boots. 
After upsetting virtually every Greek city by installing unpopular governments, they put down every rebellion violently. They'd gone back on their agreement with the Persians to hand over the cities of Asia Minor. They fought with a rebel against the king of Persia. All this was a bit silly. Sparta may have been the strongest of the Greek city-states, but it was still just that, a city-state. The Persian Empire was massive and had an almost unlimited supply of troops. This makes what the Spartans did next even more stupid. Lysander was back in Sparta, and was not getting anywhere persuading the Spartan king, Pausanias, to attack Persia. At that time, there was only one king in Sparta, as the other had recently died. Lysander would have loved to become king himself, but he was born into a very unimportant family. He could never be a king. Fortunately for Lysander, he knew a man who could. This man was the half-brother of the previous king and was therefore ideal. His name was Agesilaus. Agesilaus became king. Pausanias urged the Spartan assembly to be sensible and not even consider fighting the Persians. Lysander and Agesilaus urged the Spartan assembly to let them lead a force to invade Persian territory. So, who won? Well, they were Spartans. In 400, and then again in 396, the Spartans send troops over to Asia Minor to protect the Greek cities there and to attack the Persians. The Spartan forces were led by Agesilaus and Lysander themselves. It was a complete disaster. Agesilaus and Lysander fell out big time, and the great general was sent back to Sparta in disgrace. When he arrived, he found the whole Spartan leadership of Greece under threat. Many of the cities were revolting, and Lysander was sent to lead the fighting to put down a rebellion in Thebes. The great man was killed in the battle, and his body was not recovered. The Spartans then turned on their peace-loving king Pausanias, and accused him of not trying hard enough to rescue the dead hero. He was put on trial and condemned to death. He escaped, but spent the rest of his life in exile in Tegea. Over in Asia Minor, the Spartan navy was crushed by the Persian fleet, which was led by Conon, an Athenian general. The Athenians had always been masters of the seas, and Conon was one of the best. The Spartans didn't stand a chance. Agesilaus didn't fancy his chances against the Persians in em enemy territory, and he marched his whole army back to Greece. On the way back to Sparta, Agesilaus was challenged in battle by the combined forces of Argos, Athens and Thebes. When they saw the mighty Spartan army charge, the Athenians and Argives ran away but the Thebans stood and fought. The Battle of Coronea turned out to be a high-scoring draw. Agesilaus was badly wounded, but he made it back to Sparta with much to think about. He had lost in a sea battle with the Persians and had been successfully challenged by other Greeks. The Spartans were not used to being challenged by other Greeks. These Thebans would have to be dealt with. Pretty soon, though, the whole situation became a little strange. The Persians turned up in Greece and tried to persuade the other Greek cities to ally against Sparta. The Spartans, of course, didn't want to lose their role as the leading Greeks, and so they tried to persuade the other Greek cities to become their allies. Every time a Persian envoy turned up in a city, he was closely followed by a Spartan one. Eventually, somebody sensible called for a peace treaty. After a lot of wrangling, Sparta and Thebes were all for peace with the Persians, while Argos and Corinth were against it was left to Athens to have the casting vote. The Athenians, who also had a bit of a reputation for being too big for their boots, made their decision. They decided, nobody is quite sure why, to say no. 
The Persian king was anxious to get the whole thing sorted quickly. There was trouble in Egypt, and he wanted his forces out of Greece so he could use them to put down the trouble in Africa. He decided he wasn't in the mood for debating any further with these Greeks who couldn't even agree with each other. He dictated the terms of peace to the whole Greek world. The mighty Greeks, who had completely defeated Persia only 80 years before, were now being told what to do by a Persian king. It was highly embarrassing, and most of the Greek cities blamed Sparta. The terms of peace were basically these. All cities were to be independent of each other. All cities were to disband their armies. Any city which didn't would be crushed by the Persian army. All of the cities in Asia Minor and the island of Cyprus were to be taken over by Persia. Sparta was appointed as the police city of the Greeks. Their job was to tell tales to the Persians if any of the other cities stepped out of line. Agesilaus loved being the policeman of the Greeks. He marched against the Thebans when they tried to hold on to their Boeotian League. He marched against Argus when the city protested about not being able to carry on its alliance with Corinth. But all was not well in Sparta. All this fighting over Greece meant that Sparta began to run out of men. The Helots, who were always likely to cause trouble, began to outnumber the Spartan citizens by more than the Spartans felt comfortable with. The other Greek cities were very unhappy with Sparta doing what the Persians told them to do and were even more unhappy that the Spartans were telling them who could be in their governments. In Athens, a great debate rose up between those who said that all Greek cities should be independent and those who said they should band together against Persia. It wasn't in Athens, though, that the main rebellion took place. Athens and Attica have poor farmland. The countryside is mountainous and quite barren. As you go north from Attica, though, you reach the plains of Boeotia. Here the farmland is much richer, and the countryside is not as harsh. Sitting in the middle of Boeotia is the city of Thebes. Today, the town is about the same size as Farnborough in Hampshire, and not particularly important. In 379 BC, though, Thebes became the centre of the resistance against Sparta. When the Spartans had forced Thebes to change its government, two things happened. First the Spartans set up a garrison of troops in the city. Second, twelve leading men of Thebes escaped to Athens. They were led by a rich aristocrat called Pelopidas, and they spent their time in Athens planning how to free Thebes from Spartan control. Left in Thebes was a great friend of Pelopidas called Epaminondas. He was the opposite of Pelopidas. Although he came from a good family, he was very poor, ate only vegetables, and spent his time thinking about philosophy. The two men, and their supporters kept up secret communications and planned rebellion. They planned and planned and agreed a date for action. Pretty soon that day came. And now, here we have the first of those small things that changed history. The rebellion very nearly didn't happen. One of the conspirators in Thebes panicked and ordered that a message be sent to Athens telling Pelopidas and his friends it was too dangerous and they should not come. The messenger rushed to his horse, only to find the bridle was missing. He found out it had been borrowed by a neighbour. The messenger was in a spot of bother. He couldn't find his own bridle, and he couldn't go round Thebes asking for a bridle so that he could ride to Athens and deliver a secret message. The message was never sent. The conspirators arrived that night from Athens, and met at the house of a man called Charon. In total, there were just 48 of them. Their mission was to seek out and kill four men in Thebes that night. All of them were pro-Spartan and needed to be got rid of. 
Two of the pro-Spartan leaders were having a dinner party that night and they were on their way to becoming very drunk. Half of the rebels set out for the dinner party and the other half went to the houses of the two remaining pro-Spartan leaders. All went well for the second group. They found their targets and murdered them. It wasn't quite the same for the first group. The party was in full swing. The conspirators approached it and then changed their clothes so they were dressed as women. This, they thought, would make the pro-Spartan leaders less concerned and so make their task easier. Little did they know, as they approached the house, that their plans were about to be discovered. A messenger arrived at the party and presented a note to one of the leaders. In the note were details of the whole plot. Somebody had informed on the conspirators. This letter contains details of very serious matters for your immediate attention, said the messenger. The leader took the note. All was about to be lost for the rebels. Here, though, is where we see the second of the small things that change history. The pro-Spartan leader had consumed an awful lot of wine and was very drunk. As he struggled to make his eyes focused on the note, he declared, Serious business is for tomorrow. He then laughed a drunken laugh and put the note under his pillow. Thebes had been saved by wine. The conspirators burst into the party and killed the pro-Spartan leaders. They then rushed to the armoury and stole the weapons. They moved on to the prison and released all of the prisoners who were there for being anti-Sparta. All the conspirators met up in the city's assembly and handed out weapons to the people who came to join them. As the sun rose on a cold December morning, the people of Thebes had passed the point of no return. Now they had to rid Thebes of the Spartan soldiers in the garrison. Pelopidas and Epaminondas led the mob to the garrison. The Spartans didn't put up a fight and they were allowed to leave Thebes. The city was free. Not for long, though. Word was sent to Sparta about the rebellion and troops were dispatched. About two days out of Thebes, they were met by soldiers from the garrison. They turned round and marched back towards Thebes with the army sent from Sparta. But there was another army on its way to Thebes too. Athens had agreed to help Thebes and troops were on their way. The Spartans, realising that besieging a city in the middle of winter was a bad idea, entered a Boeotian town near Thebes and stayed there for the winter. The fight would have to wait until spring. This was fine by the Thebans, who prepared themselves for the inevitable onslaught. Athens, though, did a complete U-turn. During the winter, Spartan ambassadors managed to persuade the assembly not to support Thebes. The Thebans stood alone against the might of Sparta. However, the Spartan general managed to make the biggest blunder of the campaign. For some unknown reason, he ordered his men to attack Piraeus, the port of Athens. The Athenians were outraged and did another complete U-turn. By the time spring came back, they were back on the side of the Thebans. The war was not a quick one. For four years, the Spartans tried to engage Thebes in battle, but they wouldn't come out and fight. A bit like the Athenians all those years earlier, they simply hid behind their walls and in the mountains and only attacked the Spartan troops in raids, never hanging around long enough for a proper battle. The Thebans urged the other cities of Boeotia to join them in their fight against Sparta, and slowly they began to be successful. Before long, the Boeotian Confederacy was born, and most of the cities in the region joined it. Unlike the Athenian League, the Confederacy was very democratic. Between 375 BC and 371, three things happened which would result in the fall of Sparta. A small battle, some failed peace talks, 
and then a very large battle. In mid-375, the best regiment of troops in Thebes was marching across Boeotia under the command of Pelopidas. Quite unexpectedly, they came across a much larger Spartan force. Neither side knew the other was in the area, and it was a shock for both of them. However, now they were both there, they didn't have much choice but to fight. The Spartans heavily outnumbered the Thebans. Pelopidas led just 300 men. The Spartans had over a 1,000. These Thebans, though, were no ordinary hoplites. They were known as the Sacred Band. They were incredibly well trained and fought for each other in a way that not many armies did. To be a member of the Sacred Band was to be the best of the best in Thebes. The Spartans were not to know this and they stood their ground, waiting for the Thebans to attack or, more likely, run away. The Thebans attacked. The Spartans did not know what had hit them and they were slaughtered. Two things happened because of the battle. The Spartans realised they were not invincible and the Thebans realised they might actually be capable of winning a war against Sparta. It was only a little conflict, not a full-on hoplite battle, but it gave the Thebans that much-needed thing. Confidence. Athens was sitting in the middle of the conflict and getting worried. While the Athenians were unhappy with the Spartans being leader of the Greek world, they weren't sure that they were much keener on the Thebans taking over either. Even though they had lost the Peloponnesian War, they still thought that they were the real masters of the Greek world. All they needed was time to rebuild their strength. Hurriedly, they suggested peace talks between all three cities. In 371 BC, three powerful men met in Athens to iron out the terms of peace. The politician Callistratus spoke for Athens. Our old friend King Agesilaus represented Sparta, and Epaminondas was at the table for Thebes. Peace was agreed. Each of the three cities would be independent and could choose whether to help any of the others in a conflict. On the morning after the treaty was signed, though, someone changed his mind. Xenophon recorded what happened. Epaminondas realised the peace treaty was no good for Thebes. His city was the only one in a position to challenge Sparta, and now the Spartans and Athenians were about to tie him into a peace treaty which would stop him challenging them any more. He had to think fast. He was an honourable man and had already signed the treaty. How could he get out of it now? Epaminondas was a very clever man, and he found a way. He declared he had signed the treaty for Thebes, but now he also had to sign it on behalf of the rest of the Boeotian Confederacy. Now, Agesilaus was a hothead, and Epaminondas knew it. He knew the Spartan king would not consider letting Thebes speak for anyone else, as no city was supposed to have an empire of any sort. He was right. Agesilaus blew his top and scratched out the name of Thebes from the treaty. War was inevitable. Nobody had long to wait. The Spartan army was already marching north. Epaminondas and Pelopidas knew this was their one opportunity. The Spartans had the most powerful army in Greece, but they were on their own. The Athenians were content to sit back and watch, not wanting to support either side. Thebes had a chance, even if it was a small one, of finishing Spartan domination of Greece. The two armies met on the plain of Leuctra. There were 10,000 Spartan hoplites and 1,000 cavalry, led by the other king of Sparta, who was called Cleombrotus. Against them, the Thebans mustered 7,000 men and 700 cavalry. Pelopidas and Epaminondas gambled everything. It was traditional for Greek armies to put their best troops on the right and the weaker ones on the left, 
as the left was supposed to be unlucky. This meant that each side's right flank usually beat the other side's left flank and then met in the middle. The Thebans, though, put all of their best troops on the left and took on the cream of the Spartans immediately. At the front were Pelopidas and the men of the Sacred Band. After a few little skirmishes, the Sacred Band attacked. And they didn't just attack, they charged headlong at the Spartans. They smashed their way through the Spartan ranks. Hot on their heels was the Theban infantry, led by Epaminondas. They followed the Sacred Band through the Spartans and made straight for the king. They found him, killed him, and then turned on the rest of the Spartan army. The Spartans surrendered. The Battle of Leuctra ended Spartan domination of Greece. Thebes was now the most important city-state. Athens, though, always thought of itself as the most important city. Back in Attica, the Athenians began to plan how to get back to the top of the pile. Next week, we will see the result of those plans. Utter and total chaos. Until then, have a great week, and I'll speak to you next time.